there. Welcome to Inner Truth Healing. This is a whole body health approach to finding flow on the healing journey. Throughout my time as a naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist, I've come to realize that people who are dealing with physical ailments are often being called to go through an inner journey as well. And along my way, I got into doing intuitive coaching for women, and I've come to find four main components of our bodies that we need to pay attention to. And through a lot of trial and error, I have found four simple practices that you can start doing today in order to really take care of all aspects of yourselves and to address the parts of yourselves that are probably calling out for your help in ways of an uncomfortable life experience. Part of my whole body health perspective is how do we gain conscious control over our life experience? And I've broken it down into two main categories. If you think about how like what actually creates our experience in life, it comes down to our mental health, like the stories that we're telling ourselves about what is happening and the meaning that we're placing onto the situation in front of us. And then the feelings that our body is like actually experiencing. And that comes down to our physical health, our emotional health, and our energetic health. So if we kind of zoom out a little bit here, that means that if we can pay attention to the thoughts that we think and the way that our body feels, we can have conscious control over our life experience. And the way that you can do that practically is by taking care of your mental health, your emotional health, your energetic health, and your physical health, and putting into place simple practices that you can do consistently, because consistency is the key to creating change in your life and to creating a conscious experience of your life. If you want to learn more about my perspective and my processes, be sure to check out the show notes. All right, so today I have the author of Undercover Angel, and his name is Dave Keenest. He has been my life coach. Um, we worked together before COVID. It's been like almost, it's been like five years now or something. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm really excited to chat with him about his book and about life and about all things. So thanks for being with me, Dave. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... You wrote a book that I really enjoyed reading all about your your road to recovery. Well, it wasn't even the road, just the road to recovery. It was from the beginning into the addiction and then through the addiction and then out the other side. So I guess, um, you know, I want to just give a little bit of the book, I guess, to the to the listeners here. Um do you want to kind of share like the the main blocks or do you want me to kind of share? I, I think I would like for you to share and then maybe I'll fill anything in that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I really love the way that you wrote it. I feel like I can be really picky when I read a book if it's like super long chapters and then I'm like kind of stuck in the middle, but you had like just like very um, small like stories and they were broken up into the stories, which I loved. Um, and so basically... 
you started out in childhood and just explaining kind of like your parental dynamics and the way that they were raised and then how they raised you and just how, um, I guess the main thing I got out was that you didn't have, um, I guess, emotional support. So as a kid, you had all these feelings and you weren't really sure kind of what to do with them. And then you were with your friends and your friends, like, I'm assuming, you know, had the same kind of not really guided emotionally. And so then kids were mean to you. And then there weren't really like good, strong friend, emotional connection wise as a kid, which led you to, um, you know, just exploring different things that you like did enjoy and, and something that kind of broke my heart a little when I was reading your story is just some of these experiences that you had with kids and just how mean they were to you and how just like, like you knew that you didn't deserve it. And yet, like, it's almost like it was normalized in in a way. And it was like, okay, then I'll just, you know, be in this situation then because I have no other um, um, option, I guess. Did you feel, is that, is that kind of a good, of, of the childhood part? Is that, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, there's like the generational nature of dysfunction and the generational nature of addiction, you know, and it's it's really the the big thing I want to emphasize is like it's nobody's fault. Like every, you know, I say in there at one point, we're born and we're born and born. We're born and we're born and we're born, right? And then we die and we leave ghosts in the shadows or whatever. I can't remember what it says exactly. But um, yeah, it's not, it's just kind of like, you know, in the 80s, nobody was talking about emotional intelligence or emotions weren't something that were really discussed. Um, I would, I would assume therapy was still even kind of new ish back then. Um, it's not like it is now. And, and so, yeah, it's just this hypersensitive child, right. This hypersensitive kid, um, with no language to describe, you know, no, no language for it, no real language for it. Right. And no, um, no, uh, nowhere to really go go with it right and so then what happens is that all of that emotion kind of becomes internalized it's just stuff that's swimming around inside me and so then the the term would be um like sort of almost schizoid which is like you're it's almost like schizoid is almost like the dark side of introversion um the shadow side of introversion i guess so yeah so i'm just like I, I just had to live with this, um, just these very deep, dark feelings that were kind of inherited from lifetimes past, you know, from generations past and ancestral, you could argue. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I was really small. I was very small. I was, you know, I think when I started high school, I was 78, 79 pounds, less than five feet tall, maybe just about five feet tall, very small. Um, and so that, that's nowhere to go with that. You know what I mean? Like, where do I go with this? There's nobody to talk to about this. I'm, I'm so afraid. I don't realize how afraid I am. There's no language to describe this fear, right? I don't realize that this fear is fear and it's not how I'm labeling it. Right. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, drugs come along. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
And in from what I'm remembering, because I kind of I went on a, a trip for like three weeks. So like there was I, I read it and then I went on this break and then finished it when I got back. Um, but from what I'm remembering, um, it was like in the beginning, it was just like something that your friends were doing. Like you had passed up on the drugs, but then it was like the friend group got into it. So then you were like, OK, I'll give it a try. Right. Like, isn't that how it kind of started? Oh. It, it was like, uh, you know, I was like this skater kid in the, in when I was in eighth, seventh and eighth grade. I love skateboarding. I mean, I fell so deeply in love with it. You know, the book ends with me as a surfer, you know, so it's like board, me and boards uh, have always, there's never anything I had to figure out um, regarding whether or not I loved the board thing. There are board people, right? Um, there are board people and they're like ball people. I'm a board person. <laughs> um and uh <laughs> and uh versus like baseball or football or whatever um but um yeah so the skaters they didn't do drugs really um this is like 1987 88 89 some did but drugs were not a part of the they were not a part of the scene overall um the skater kids were especially back then very artistic uh creatives very tough in their own way you know um but yeah. The, and, and so my, I had, there was some kids I was friends with in junior high and they, they started doing, they started smoking a lot of pot and, you know, we're little, I mean, basically little kids back then, you know, um, not little kids, but kids for sure. And, um, and I wasn't interested at all. And until I don't think I started really smoking weed until I was a junior in high school. I actually didn't. I tried it a few times before that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until, um, I was a junior. It was the fall of my junior year. There's a there's a story in the book called Stone, and that was the first time that I ever got really high, and that was that was my junior year. And then, but from there, from there, it was like I mean, I was like instantly hooked. Didn't quite realize it, but I I really was, you know. Yeah, and around that same time was when like LSD and the Dead kind of came part of the picture too. Yeah. So that was, that was, um, yeah, the LSD came around that summer. I, I had actually done it at the beginning of my junior year before I was really into pot. Um, cause that was, that was strange because LSD all of a sudden was a thing. Um, when I was, I think I was a sophomore in high school, all of a sudden it was a thing. Kids were doing it and it was just a certain small group of kids, kind of the more adventurous ones, I guess you might say, um, but yeah, that became a thing. And it was, it was very, it was a hard thing. It was a hard, very difficult to not be genuinely curious about. Mm -hmm. you know? It was, um, there's just so it's, and, and, and LSD is not an overrated substance. It's an incredibly powerful, potentially very, very, very dangerous, um, substance. Um, and the fact that we as kids were taking it is uh, astonishing. I mean, honestly, but um, yeah. So, and, and then the, the Grateful Dead, right. They, they were, um, they fed right into it. You know, I, I kind of paint the band, the Grateful Dead in a bit of a dark light in the book. Um, kind of the, I kind of get at the underbelly of what was happening in that, in that psychedelic circus. But yeah, that kind of came around the summer after my junior year, I saw the dead for the first time in 1992. Um, in Chicago. And, um, and that, that was a, that was a life changing 
that was a life changing experience. My life was never the my life was never the same um, after that that day. Do you want to explain a little why? Well, the um the 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 thing about the Grateful Dead is that um they 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 provided uh, the music itself. The entire phenomenon um, was this experience that that um the the experience of of hearing that of of having that music performed for you um in in a in a psychedelic state was um so profound and so um so it, the the experience itself was so profound that it was something that you could not that a vast the vast majority of people who would stumble into their shows <coughs> um could never forget um could never uh the, the experience itself was deeply moving b very beautiful very um otherworldly in a lot of ways heavenly uh or celestial um and and it was truly i mean the thing about the grateful dead is that you were you were very much stepping into um, the the 1960s in a lot of ways. When Jerry Garcia died, there was a quote that said the 60s died today. So it really felt like, I mean, it, it didn't feel like it was this, it was basically like walking into Woodstock, li very literally. Um, and and once that, I mean, the, the music would, it would just, it would course through your veins. I mean, it would, it would get into the cells of your body and the cells of your brain and it would dance around and it would, it would, it would trick you and play it was it was beyond beautiful there aren't words there aren't words to describe it and so the reason that people people essentially the majority of people who were following the dead they would have this experience at a dead show and then they would want the next one well this is i have I, I can't live without this this is this changed my life right and so it was a, a deeply a deeply transcendent and transformational experience not to mention i'm still a kid the vast majority is at that time majority of the people at dead show were kids the older people were in like their 20s you know what i mean <laughs> yeah certainly not all of them i mean there were like older deadheads for sure but a lot of them like when i was like 17 you know like a 22 year old that's like an old person you know what i mean you look at a 22 year old now that's a kid right so um yeah the experience itself was was deeply transformational and the you know J jerry garcia was um he was a uh, he was very he was very much like an avatar he occurred as an, an an avatar and he was deified you know he was turned into this god sort of a thing he's just a person um who happened to be very good at the guitar um but uh i mean he's a brilliant brilliant musician he's one of the greatest guitar players to ever live but but he was really just a human being who had demons of his own you know he was a heroin he died a heroin addict um he he didn't surrender in the way that I did in the book. He was, he had, his ego had a lot of, he, he wasn't a perfect human being by any stretch. And so the, the tapping into that world was, it was, there was a lot of nuance in it. There was a lot of beauty, but there was also a lot of darkness. Um, there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of people following that band around that were not good people. You know, there are a lot of drug addicts, there are a lot of drug dealers, there's a lot of vice, there's a lot of um, the breaking of the law. You know, there's a lot of people who ended up in prison. Um, and so 
it wasn't just the music. There was this whole other thing, but the, it was for me personally, it was the music that was, that was the most profound. That was why I went to the, the shows. The parking lot was great. What was happening in the parking lot outside of the shows was awesome and mystical and wonderful and amazing in a lot of ways. But the music, the music was why I went, you know? Yeah. I haven't ever personally experienced anything like that. Um, but what I'm hearing is like, it seems like it's just this, this feeling of like complete, like connectedness. I mean, even when you go to a, just like a concert, any concert, it's like <laughs> everyone's there because they love the artists that they're seeing, you know? And so there's this common connection on that, but I feel like you bring in psychedelics plus like the level of the music that they were playing and like the love and like that's what it was centered around, at least from my outside perspective, not really knowing much about the dead. It's like it was like love and light and just like jam band vibes. But I feel like it's the connectedness that's like the inner experience. Is that would that be a good perception of that? And yeah, I mean, there's an element. I mean, there's a gigantic element to it all. A huge element. The primary element of it is completely magical completely interconnected psychic um you know, almost like speaking in tongues which i've heard was a thing that would happen at a lot of dead shows like the really really good ones um and there's a spirit to it there's a spirit to it that that flowed throughout it even when i saw the dead in chicago in 20 2015 uh for what was that supposed to be their final tour their final shows the spirit is still there you know, the spirit was still there and, and it's the spirit of the dead that people essentially are following around. So I'm not meaning to paint them in a bad light. Um, cause, cause it's part of the, the part of that band is within me. You know, for, right. you know, yeah. 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 It's all, it's all of it. Right. <clears throat> well, yeah, it's like the yin and the yang and then the sub yang yeah. and then the sub yang and then the super yin. It's like this whole, uh, completely tripped out, magical, psychedelic, masterpiece you know in a lot of ways yeah yeah okay so from here um to like share your story from the book you then um I forget the specifics between from Chicago to Colorado you essentially went to college in Steamboat no I went to college in Fort Collins oh Fort Collins why did I think Steamboat okay yes you were up at up in the fort yeah I was in the fort yeah and I was there. I lived in Steamboat also after I graduated college. Um, okay. But yeah, and so Fort Collins back then was a really, I mean, it was a really amazing place to live. And it was an amazing time to live there. Uh, Fort Collins was just barely, barely on the map. Okay. And so, um, well, I guess I do want to just kind of, I guess, okay. I want to go back a little bit to high school and with the the girl because that too was something that I read that and I think that's when I texted you and I was like oh my gosh I'm loving your book like your sweetheart because like you just loved this girl and she was just so mean to you and I'm just like oh my gosh and then you know thinking back to my own self and like how did I treat guys in my past you know because I feel like it's all part of just being human right um but um, yeah, just the confusingness of that, of someone like loving you so much and then just like flip of a switch becoming someone that's terrible to you. Um, that was kind of like your first big heart 
love, break, all of it. Right. Yeah, now as you know, that's referred to as trauma bonding. So trauma bonding is basically when two people bond through abuse, you know. So I didn't realize that what was happening was abusive, completely abusive, right? Completely demented. And um yeah, so there was that. So there's that trauma bonding. So then there's all this, so then there's all the the anger and the rage from the that are part of like the early childhood stuff that continues on, right? And then now there's this love sickness that that then all that anger then turns gets turned inwards. Depression is anger turned inward, right? So now there's these new feelings. What what do I do with all these feelings? Like what's going on inside of me? And so, but again, no language to describe it, no conversation about it, no self awareness around it. Just it just is you, and then you sprinkle a drug in there, and then the drug is just a continuation of the emotional intoxication that I've been living with for a very long time. Yeah. The drugs are just, they, when you start to take drugs, they're just a continuation of the drugs that you're already dosed on. So there's a, there's a, a recovery program that I, a part of, um, anonymous program that I'm a part of where it refers to as dosing transactions, right? And a dosing transaction is basically what happens when a perpetrator perpetrates on a victim. That's re referred to as a, do when that trauma bond happens, that's referred to as a dosing transaction. And basically it, it both, parties in that interaction end up losing. So both parties end up with less, right? Mm -hmm. So the person that is inflicting the pain does not feel good afterwards, whether they realize it or not. So they lose. And then the person who is inflicted on loses also. That's lose, lose, right? And that's again, a dosing transaction. Mm -hmm. So it results in this emotional intoxication. <clears throat> um, it, it results in emotional intoxication that the person is at, very literally high from very literally dotes. And so then um, uh, dosed out or dosed up or whatever. And then when drugs come along, when they, that, that weed hits you, all that is, is a continuation. Of that same. It's, like yeah, it's just a new drug. It's just a new drug, but it's external instead of internal. So I say in the book, like my brain had been mixing elixirs for decades. Right. So then when that weed comes in, it's just, more of the same. That's all it is. And then LSD, which is far more potent drug right now, you've got this, I've got this, this world that I've been living inside of. And now it's technicolor, technicolor, you know, with this illegal stuff that could literally send you to prison, you know what I mean? For a long time. Um, and, you know, hence the title undercover angel, like what was watching over me the whole time? You know what I mean? What was, what was, what was saw to it that I didn't. And then also why weren't those angels for there for some of the people that needed them? You know what I mean? Who didn't, weren't so lucky or blessed. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. So from. But yeah. From so the girl, right. That was heartbreak and devastation and sadness. Right. And then that's a recurring theme. If you didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Um, so essentially you go to college, like you break that girl, <coughs> your heart, no longer with that, that person, you go to college, you kind of have multiple situations with women that kind of do similar things that just kind of treat you like crap. And then you're, um, you know, kind of find yourself in the kitchen in this, um, 
mountain town, like just yeah, do do living it up, but also well, it becomes well, really- you know, so that so it becomes very <laughs> promiscuous, right? There's a lot of smoke in there, right? Uh, particularly like <laughs> mid to late twenties, right? It gets really smutty, right? And so that promiscuity, that's just a that's just a that's just a solution, right? That's that's per, that's basically protection, right? Mm-hmm. And it gets glorified, you know, there's a way to glorify it, you know, like you're some kind of ladies man or whatever, but really all that was, or I'm some kind of ladies man or something, really all that was, was that was just protection, right? But again, undistinguished, unclear. I don't know what's going on here. I've just got a big head. I'm some like freaking cool guy bro in my 20s in Colorado, you know, who thinks he's the freaking coolest dude ever. But But arrogance, right, is righteousness mixed with fear. So all that was, was that there was all this fear beneath the surface, right? There was fear beneath the surface that, that the righteousness was kind of counterbalancing. And so that's a, that's not a healthy dynamic, right? So, and in all that, those years were a lot of, there were a few very fun years there for a while and particularly in Fort Collins, you know, but, but still that was kind of all solution, you know, or that was like a fix, I guess you would call it in coaching. We refer to that as a fix. You know, promiscuity is a fix for heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, and then furthermore, there's like, uh, there's a lack of interest in that, which is healthy. Right. So, so, you know, for every girl that was horrific to me, there were like ones that were completely healthy, right. Who I'm not interested in. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, I call it the Big Mac versus the salad. Right. And so when you're when you're into Big Macs, you don't want to eat a salad. Right. So there's that whole dynamic, too. So there's just a lot of and I didn't again, I didn't know this stuff until I mean, somewhat recently. You know, the last 10 years. Right. And I feel like there's could be a little bit more because I feel like you have you have so much wisdom and um, I love what you said about arrogance and righteousness. It's actually righteousness and fear. Like, I think it's brilliant. Um, but I think just if there's a listener that's like, well, but I'm really, I want, I want to eat the salad, mm. but how can I, how can I quit the Big Macs? Do you have? I mean, that would be a, you know, if you were to look at, look at that through the lens of, um, you know, those would be referred to as uh, in the recovery world as character defects, right? And so you would, you, you know, you work up a, a process, a, you know, a step process um, in which you would ask for those defects to be removed by higher power, God, he, she, it, whatever. Okay. <clears throat> so Colorado is also where you found your love for, for teaching. Yeah. And so do you want to just share a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I was going to be a teacher. Um, and uh, I was good at teaching. You know, I loved kids and I I worked with all sorts of different kids. And I, I think I started that when I was 26 years old. Um, but by that point, by the time I was 26, I was a complete alcoholic drug addict. Um, I didn't really realize it, but I definitely was. Um, I was probably a full-blown alcoholic by the time I was 21, 22, 21. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, um, that was going to be my life path. And, and so I'm, you know, the, the, the disease of addiction or of alcoholism, 
Um, and I do believe it is a disease or people say, we don't believe in the disease model of addiction. Like, I think that's, I, I think that's a somewhat sophomoric way to relate to it. Just personally, that's just my opinion. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the, it will lie to you, you know, it lies to you. And so I, I was basically telling myself like, oh, I've been, my twenties have been a party and it's been great. And now that I'm 30, I'm going to be a, now that I'm almost 30, I'm going to be a teacher. And so I will, I'm just going to put that life behind me as soon as I get a teaching job. Well, yeah, this, that's, it's just not that simple because if you actually are like a true addict or a true alcoholic, you can't just get out of it. You can't just stop. Um, some people sort of can circumstances in their life will change their they'll fall in love or whatever. But if you're like an actual, you know, true alcoholic or addict, like it's going to require a deeply transformational process uh, for you to, to, to get over it, you know? And so once that, once the damage is done, the damage is done. Right. And once you, so, so, so trying to become a professional teacher with this, gorilla on my back you know that was that was point you know that that just wasn't that just wasn't happening right but again i don't i don't realize this is what's happening i'm not aware of it i'm partially aware i'm more you know it's like it starts to get more and more bankrupt like you know it's referred to as moments of clarity <clears throat> you know you start to have these moments of clarity which are basically like i'm fucked like i'm screwed that's mm -hmm. a moment of clarity Right. And so I was having a lot of those towards the end, but then you can still have the moments of clarity and still now, now you have, might have to go to rehab for four months, which is what I did. Eventually I went to rehab twice, but yeah. So then the teaching thing fell through and then, you know, the book starts out, you know, I'm in Japan and Japan gets revisited. That was an entire shit show in itself. Um, but yeah, so so when that fell through, I had no purpose. I had no sense of anything. I didn't think I would ever succeed at anything. And and that just fueled, that just made, took everything from bad and, and made it much, much, much worse. Mm -hmm. I, I have a quick little side thing that I want to chat on. Um, you know, you said like you were, you know, by 21, 22, like a full blown alcoholic, but like you didn't even realize it at the time. Like, I guess I'm just thinking of, you know, maybe someone who could be listening right now that is like, I've had those moments of clarity, but I've been on a straight and narrow path and like, I'm, I'm doing really well. And like my, my life is turning around um, but I'm not doing any step work and I'm not doing any, like, I'm just focusing on, you know, living my life, but not necessarily facing the actual addiction that either once was, or like, do you have anything, I guess, that you want to, anything that's coming to you to share? On well, that? it's just, it's just, there's not really any easy way out. So like my coaching, my life coaching, I don't do any addiction stuff at all. That's not what it's for. Right. It's for it's just not what it's for. Um, and occasionally I'll have someone that will like want help with a drinking problem or something uh, that wants to work with me. Maybe that's just not an easy conversation to have, um, because if I can hear it, like I know it when I hear it, like I can tell if somebody's trying to manage an addiction without admitting that they have an addiction. 
um, I can just tell. And so it's just not an easy conversation to have when somebody is a real alcoholic or a real addict and they just want to quote unquote cut back. I want to cut back. Like that's, that's not really something that I, I know to work, you know, um, I identify as an alcoholic, so I cannot have a single drop of liquor. You know, I've had prescriptions for, you know, I just telling you yesterday, I broke my arm really badly. I've had prescriptions, um, over the years, not a big deal, but that's happening inside of a recovery context. So I'm accountable to people and I'm, I'm talking with this, uh, talking about people with this and I'm, being responsible and whatnot um but yeah so it, it it there's just a lot of um you know i started to really know i said i wasn't aware but but you know i started to know when i was 21 i started to have these like yeah this is something i can't stop i know i can't stop this um but but then I would tell myself, I just don't want to stop. I could stop. I just don't want to stop. And then a part of me would always be like, well, I'll just meet somebody and then I'll just stop like that. Or I'll just get a job and I'll just start like that. And those are all lies. Those are all lies that the ego will trick you into. You know, so for someone who's 21, 22 years old, like you can tell, you can just, you can just tell if they're, if they're screwed, but they're the ones, you know, addiction or alcoholism is the only self-diagnosing disease. So that's it. They have to diagnose themselves. So you could point at them and say, you're an addict or whatever. But if they're not willing to admit it, then it's on them. You know, so there's not really any easy answer to that question at all, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yes, you do have to face it. Like it's like a dragon. You have to, you have to stare down the dragon and, you know, side note, but you know, there's these people, uh, where I live in California, I mean, there's fentanyl zombies wandering around all over the place. I mean, they're messed up, you know, like, but every one of them is capable. You know, you just got to hunker, you just got to be willing to hunker down and get in the fetal position and get over it. Like I did, like they're all capable and the resources are there. The resources are ready, readily available. I mean, the actual path of recovery via the anonymous programs is free. It doesn't cost anything. You know, and it's ev literally everywhere all over the world. Um, and but but most people aren't ready to essentially submit themselves to surrender themselves at that at the level of which these programs require. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm curious because something that's kind of coming to me right now as you share that is, you know, <clears throat> like why? Like, why is it so hard for people to fully admit that? they have a problem. And I, I think I just want to share what I'm kind of thinking and then get your perspective on it. Cause I feel like for me, um, the way that I view addiction is it's a lot of like internalized shame and like, I'm a piece of shit worthless, like no good. Like, and I just need to numb all of these feelings, um, is kind of how I would, um, you know, in my own eating disorder addiction, um, that you actually, I want to just tell the listeners, like Dave was the first one. I'm going to probably get a little emotional here, but you were the first one to like, have me surrender. Like you were like, I am completely, um, out of control, you know, like you were the first one to like, really help me like face it head on. So love you so much for that. Um, cause that was the start of my recovery. 
Um, but anyway, so for me, it's like addiction is such like a shame-based thing that it's like to admit out loud that I have a problem is like that, like getting to that point has to be just so, so hard because it's so, you have to go through so much shame to get there. What do you think? Uh, I I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the ego wants to kill you basically. I, I like, you could, you could take it out the context of addiction, right. And you could look at um, a, a politician, right. Who, will not admit that their policy is not working at all, right? And they will cling to that. They will cling to their story. And then literally a bunch of people end up dying, right? Or a lot of bunch of people end up in jail or a bunch of people are freed from jail who shouldn't be or whatever, because the ego will not, does not want to admit that it is wrong, right? And it will, it will pursue that to the gates of insanity and death, literally, Right. It's the reason war start. It's the reason um, it's just the reason for so much is the ego, the 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 deadliness of the ego, which, you know, count, there's there's also a, a survival side to the ego. Right. <clears throat> um, we need the ego to survive, um, but but it can work against us. And so that that admission, that annihil that soul annihilating admission of I cannot do this. I am completely and totally powerless. I am completely and totally powerless. You have to make that admission at the deepest, darkest level of your soul, the deepest level that you can muster that admission up from you. It must be admitted from the deepest aspects of your being, the deepest aspects of your soul. And most people are not willing to go there or they're incapable of going there. And so, you know, step one of the 12 steps, it, it, it's the only one you have to do perfectly. I, I am completely and totally annihilated. I lost, I'm done. And, you know, I went to rehab twice. So my first time in rehab, I'm like not fully admitting that. You know, like a part of me is telling me like I could still get away with some, you know, and and look where that and, you know, look where I ended up as a result of that. So, yeah, it just requires a, a, a level of soul searching that most souls aren't they're not ready to go there mm -hmm. or they don't. They, you know, they they can't, you know, the, the I was a full blown maintenance drinking alcoholic and. And now I can't imagine a life with alcohol and I don't want it. It's the last, I'm never thinking about it. Um, I never consider taking a drink ever. Um, that comes as a result of the spiritual work that is required of a person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is rooted in action. It's not rooted in sitting there and, and, you know, people want to get sober with Kundalini yoga. Like that's great. Sure. But you got to clean up the wreckage. You know, you have to be, um, uh, you have to be willing to, um, to, to, to take the actions that are required of you, uh, to clean up the wreckage of your past. And you have to be willing to take a moral inventory and you have to be willing to do a bunch of things that are very much counterintuitive. Um, and most people are unwilling to do that. Yeah. I loved, um, this is, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but I loved at the end where you were talking about, um, surrender is an active act 
And yeah, it means totally. It means you'll go do it's like surrender is okay, God, I'll do the thing that you want me to do versus the thing that I want to do. That's surrender. Like if you were to if you were in an army um and you surrendered to the other side, um, or if you're the president of a country who surrenders in a war or whatever, that's going to require that you now do what the other country says. Surrender. I have to do things, <laughs> not passive. So it's not to be equated with giving up. Right. Right. And I feel like that delineation is so important because, I mean, I personally know people are like, I'm surrendering, I'm surrendering, but they're not doing anything. Like they're giving it up to God, but they're, they're essentially giving up because they're not taking action. Right. And so, you know, you have to, and the actions are not, um, they're not um, easy. You know, it's not, and, and, and the, um, you know, the 12 steps in a lot of ways, uh, I'm in no way identifying with one of those programs, by the way, want to protect them at all costs, but um, they're essentially, what they are is a structure inside of which one surrenders to God. That's what they are. And they are ego annihilating. So, you know, there's a lot of in the spiritual world talk about transcending the ego and, and um, you know, chanting your way through your ego and all of that. Like, I get that and all, but but to annihilate the ego, one must be willing to take actions that the ego does not want, which is making a list of people you hurt and then going around and specifically telling them exactly what you did and then becoming willing to express express that you're willing to do whatever is required of you to, to make that right. That's not an easy thing to do. And that's very much, that's the opposite of what the ego does. So what you're doing there is you're, you're annihilating the ego in a lot of ways. And that's what leads to the true, genuine spiritual awakening, which in my opinion is the only way to have any kind of permanent recovery. If you are listening to this episode right now and having the thought of, oh, I should be taking a little bit more action. And I know that and I'm having some cringy feelings inside because I know that and I've been letting myself down. I want to just take a moment and give you some love and just, you know, share that this is part of the journey, right? It's like there's a lot of active and then there's a lot of um, needing, needing the space and time to like process what has come up. And um, I do think that once you can get into habitual patterns, that take care of all aspects of yourself, your mental, emotional, physical, and energetic. Like when you can really, you know, consistently take care of yourself, all all parts of your being, including those ones, um, I think that that's when you can consistently have, you know, not such like extreme ebbs and flows of energy and feelings and all the things Um, And I have a virtual platform that I really want to recommend to you guys. It's one of my sponsors, Mindful Kawa. Um, It's basically an on-demand virtual wellness retreat where you can go on and meet like many different wellness experts and all, all the different areas, including yoga, meditation, nutrition, movement, healing, self-care, and self-development. And it just exposes you to many different teachers. So you can find the ones that you truly resonate with because I found that that's something on my own journey. I've been just kind of picky with the different teachers that I listen to. And um, I mean, it, if I could just get a little bit of taste of 
what they're about and um, if I think that it resonates with me and if I think it can help me, then that's when I'll dive deeper into a teacher. So this platform is affordable and it's just, it's a way to meet many different teachers and find who resonates with you. So I think you should check it out if you're feeling called. Do you want to, I'm kind of just getting called to go to the end. Is it okay if we, if we go to talk about your, um, so the, the first experience that you had with God, do you just want to, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? No. So there's a chapter in the book called undercover angels. Um, and, and they, um, there were these guys who came into the second recovery. There was the second, um, rehab center I ended in that I spent uh, four months in in the summer of 2007 and there's guys that came along and from a, a, a program right and they and they're basically just like uh what's it gonna be guys what what you gonna do you know look look at your lives look at what has become of you you know if you if you do these these if you take these steps um that are outlined here um that we will help you with um, you will have a spiritual awakening and, and the desire to drink and use will, will essentially vanish. And so this was my second time in rehab. I had a pending DUI, second pending DUI. And I also had a felony. So at this point I'm on a felony probation in Cook County in Chicago. Right. Um, my life was destroyed and I gotten through this brutal, I think I was in detox for 13 days excuse me um but that was awful right um and and just by this point just starting to get you know an hour or two of sleep a night um and uh and all that happened was i started to listen to these guys i'm like well look at my life i'm gonna listen because my first rehab i was like i'm not gonna believe in god i you know i was really into being offended like oh i'm offended by i'm offended by you and your prayers and all this haughty, you know, stuff. And, and that, that really got me nowhere. Right. So I was, I was one of those offended people in regards to like the supposedly Christian aspect, which there wasn't any really, you know what I mean? It's a spiritual, it's just God, as you understand God. And, uh, and so that got me nowhere. Right. And so then, um, I just started listening to these guys. That's all. Um, and I, just, yeah. Can I just interrupt you real quick? Because there was a point in the book that I wrote down where you had a peculiar moment of clarity and disgust for like where you were in your life. And I feel like that was the first that I noticed like a shift in what was happening. Um, so I just wanted to, I guess, interject well, there and be like, what's that about? Is that part of this right here in this well, moment? The day Dave and I recorded this podcast episode, I had already had a pretty full schedule when we decided to, to record the podcast. And I did it because I knew if I wasn't able to have that conversation with him like that day, I'd have to wait until after the holidays. And I just didn't want to wait because I had just finished his book. And so I thought it was a perfect opportunity for me to have some mind magic because I've been taking it and it truly has helped me focus and have the energy for like a sustained amount of time. It's got matcha, bacopa, ashwagandha, rhodiola, lion's mane, and cordyceps mushrooms and all of those things. All of them, I love them like separately and for it all to be in a blend, it's amazing. It's, it's 
truly like a perfect blend if you're looking for that sustained focus and memory retention and just straight up energy throughout the day. So if you wanna try it, it's gonna be in Sprouts in January, or you can go to their website and use my code for 50% off your first subscription or 20% off your first time purchase. So that website is magicmind.co slash teahealing20. The last section of the book before rebirth is entitled uh, Incomprehensible Demoralization. And so there's, um, there's a, I mean, just a level that I had gone with it all that was nothing shy of disgusting. You know, I, how I'm alive, I don't even know. Um, it kind of comes back to the, the title, or under, Undercover Angel. Like there's there's a beginning part in the very, very beginning called Angel Fight, where it's God and the, de- the devil and an angel fighting back and forth with the fate of my soul, right? And for whatever reason, the angel won. I, I don't know why. Um, but probably because of the surrender piece, but yeah. So it was just very peculiar. The end of the, the ending of my story was very peculiar. It was very, very, very dark. It was very disturbing. It's disgusting, you know? And, and so I brought all of this into my second treatment. And so when these guys are coming along and they're saying the same thing that I've been hearing for a while now at this point, cause I've been, I tapped into the recovery community enough to know what was going on in it you know what i mean um and there's someone who i called you know there's a character in the book named james there's a chapter called james's resurrection in which i reached out to this kid who i partied with in high school and a little bit in college and i had heard he'd been reborn or something and i somehow remembered his parents phone number from memory i don't know how um called that number left a message on their answering machine and he called me back like five days later or something and and he started introducing me to the recovery world right and i was very resistant to it this is at least a year before these moments in the second rehab right so anyway by the time i was in the second rehab and these guys are like yeah how'd that not praying you know go for you last time how did that being unwilling to believe in a power greater than yourself go for you last time so i'm like i'm just thinking myself it didn't go very good just it didn't go very good at all you know and um and so I just, all that happened is the door of willingness. So what's referred to often is the little door of willingness, a sliver of willingness open. And, and then I was um, in my, in my treatment room, you know, like at the end of a hallway and it was probably 35 or 40 days into my second treatment center. And I was reading a book by Stephen Hawking called a brief history of time, not a spiritual book. You know what I mean? Um, and I, at this point, I'd also started like learning about quantum physics randomly. And so um, I, I started uh, to understand that there's like, understand the behavior of molecules at the subatomic level, right? These little particles at the subatomic level, I started to understand a very rudimentary way, like what was happening in the quantum world. And I was like, something is, something is going on in that world that I cannot explain that is beyond me, Right. Um, and so, uh, I was having, it was nap time. It was like four in the afternoon and supposed to be having nap time. My head was supposed to be down or I was reading this book. I don't think I was supposed to be reading the book and, um, cause I was supposed to be taking a nap. And, uh, all of a sudden uh, I saw a white light, a burning bush, white light. And, uh, my whole life completely changed at that point. 
Um, so I felt the presence of God, the presence of angels, the presence of whatever. And I just knew in that very moment that everything was going to be okay. Just washed over you. Yeah, completely washed over me. And it was like, uh, it was like, it was like I was remembering something, you know, that was the thing I forgot about. I left out about the dead, like the dead, when this music would start playing, it was like you were remembering something. It's like, I, I, there's a magical land I will return to someday. They're just showing me this or playing, you know, it was, it was and, and so this, and there's certainly something spiritual at work in all of that. Right. Um, but with this experience, it was like, I was remembering something. I was like, Oh, that's right. Oh, I've, I've completed a leg of my journey. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so then, um, yeah, from there, I knew it was going to be fine. And so from there, I started to um, have, I had different thoughts now, like, oh, I bet a recovery home in Chicago would be pretty cool. Oh, I bet the recovery community in Chicago is pretty cool. I bet there's things to do with people in recovery all the time in Chicago. Oh, I bet there's, you know, I bet there's girls in recovery, you know, like all, all of these thoughts like started to, I started to have different thinking. My thinking started to change at a really fundamental level. And so that was like, I'm at this point, I'm willing to go to any length. I'm willing to like, okay, if I have to check into a treatment center, I will, or to a halfway house, a recovery home, I will. Okay. If I have to go to these recovery gatherings that are happening all the time, I will, I'll go to as many as I need to multiple in a day, which I did. Um, but that, but all of this still do, but these, um, sometimes, so, so these thoughts, um, my thoughts started to change. And so from that point on, it was just about writing it out. You know, like I just got to get through this treatment center. I just need to get through this lame rehab experience. I have to get through this because rehab sucks, you know, um, it just does. And, but at the same time, it's very comfortable. Um, you know, I got to deal with this counselor who doesn't like me. I got to deal with this guy. I don't like, I got to deal with, you know, this, you know, a lot of ways it's like prison. It's not, I mean, it's definitely not nearly as bad, but you know, the food sucks. There's no girls, like all this little stuff, you know, it just kind of sucks. And so I was like, well, I just need to ride this out. And, and I did, you know, but it was all began at that one moment that I'm, that you're asking about. Yeah. So it was, you had an openness to you, a willingness, and you were, you know, listening. You're like, I'm, I'm, I think I might be ready for this to like oh. actually work. And then it did. And then when you had that experience, what I heard is it gave you hope and that hope changed just changed your perspective. So you started thinking, think like seeing the world in a different whole new way. Well, right. And so if you look at the 12 steps, the first step is came, uh, you know, we admitted we were powerless, that our lives are unmanageable. That's a no brainer. Look at my life. The second step, and there's a principle behind each step, right? And I believe the principle behind the first step is honesty, I believe. But the principle behind the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's step two. Uh, the principle behind that step is hope. And so uh, you go from a state of hopelessness to a state of hope. And so that's what happened in that moment. I became, I got hope. There was no hope. And now I had hope. And now with hope, it's a whole different game because yeah, I was hopeless before. So if you give hope to someone who's and the definition of hope is to expect with desire. Right. And so at the beginning of the book, there's a chapter called hope. And it's like the, the thing that makes it is hope. 
and there's a pair there's like some paradoxes in the way I'm describing it. Cause the thing that makes it hope is that you don't, is you hope when there's nothing left to do, you're like, Oh, don't give up hope. Right. It's just a, a just a, a place to beg God from. I refer to it as, um, don't give up hope, but the definition of hope is actually to expect with desire. So that's what started to happen. It started to have hope. And from there, again, everything changed. There's a different game. Yeah. And it's, I'm just thinking of like, you know, there's so many different people that I can think of right now who are just stuck in like a more hopeless place. And it's like, you can't, there's nothing that you can do, you know, to give them hope. It ha- it has to come from within. Yeah. And it, and it requires, you know, you could apply the 12 steps to like anything. Like yes, I'm powerless here. I'm powerless. I am totally powerless. There is nothing and and so you'll hear like um, there's certain I I know people that have done they they have other ways of recovering from addiction right um, there's there are these there are different modalities but um, I personally find the traditional one to be the most effective you know personally um, and a lot of people would say it's the only one and I get why they would say that right. Um, but I, I know some people that have sort of, and I've had this attitude, so I speak from having been there, but you're never powerless. You're never, no, you're never powerless. You know, like don't ever admit you're powerless. You're way more powerful than you could ever believe. And that is a very arrogant orientation to things. Um, and, and I found, I discovered where that got me. Not admitting I was powerless, had very predictable trajectory associated with it. And so, again, this is just my experience. Um, I do share my experience. You know, there's many others who share in my experience. We have the exact same experience. And again, this is just my opinion, right? Um, so I want to keep an eye on my own haughtiness, right, in relationship to others, my judgment of others, right? But, um, but yeah, on top of that admission, you know, anything becomes possible because if I'm powerless, that means something else is like all powerful. And so then my job becomes, how do I surrender to that? And there's a very specific path that you can take that will support that process of surrender. (coughs) Becoming hopeful is part of it. Yeah. Do you think that people kind of have to get to that rock bottom point before they're able to like fully give up and surrender and be like, okay, I am powerless. Do you think it takes that rock bottom moment? Yes. I mean, for a person who's a full-blown alcoholic or addict, yes. If you're not, you could dance around it. Um, But I, you know, at this point, I don't, um, this is kind of an aside conversation, but, you know, the recovery community is deeply interconnected. And people think, people think, you know, like my friends from back in the day, you know, I just have a handful of friends from back in the day. Um, they think that it's this sort of path of weakness or something, or that you you need this thing to cling to so that, and that's not what it is. What it really is, it's a community of human beings who are in re- the real talk. We're in real talk with one another. And I don't want to have anything but real talk in my life. You know, like there's got to be a real talk talk core at the center of my existence. And the only people I want to have relationships with are also the real talk people. And so that's kind of what recovery is about. It's about real talk, right? And so when you have a, 
people who have all gone through this process together, we've got some things to talk about. You know what I mean? Some real things. And it doesn't make anybody else in the world wrong or anything, right? But it's that um, everybody just is where they is, where they are. But but yeah, that um, that admission opens the door for everything. And you don't yeah. need to be a bottom of the barrel, gutter dwelling, alcoholic junkie. Um, you could admit it about every anything in your life. But that's most people just aren't there, and they they have to be beaten into submission. Mm-hmm. By the real talk, um, I'm just curious if you have the experience of hearing people's stories and then it's like you want me, I got, okay. So I guess I should just say that when I was, um, going to these 12 step meetings, um, I just remember hearing people sharing their story and like seeing how, we could have a like a same like a, I guess a similar inner experience with a completely different outer world experience that made us feel that way, and then it was like a connection on that shared inner world experience. Is that um, what you're referring to by real talk? Or well, I mean that's like- how the entire that's how the entire recovery movement began. Um, the recovery movement began when one person reached out to another one in 1935 and said, Hey, I'm screwed. And the other one said, uh, so am I, I lost my wife. So did I, I have no money. Neither do I. Um, I've destroyed my business. So have I, that was how the whole thing started. That's it. One person talking to another one about what was happening inside of their soul. That's it. That's how the whole thing began. Right. Um, And so now you have programs, multiple programs that basically address all of the vices in the human condition. It just comes from what's on my one person sharing authentically with what was uh, about what was happening inside of them with another. That's it. Yeah. Steps came later. I feel like the most. What's up? That's the foundation of it. It's one person helping another. Yeah. Yeah. I think the norm, not, I don't want to say, I say like normalization, but that's not, it's like the, the, the shared inner experience and making me feel like, okay, like I'm not alone, you know, like it's not, this isn't like necessarily normal, but it's a, like someone else has experienced this too. Like that, that hearing it straight out of their story and then relating it to my own, like there was something magical even in that. Yeah. And I would, I would argue it's beyond magical that it's miraculous, you know, cause uh, uh, you know, mirror uh, magic is trying to sort of manipulate reality uh, to suit our own needs or our wants or desires. And mir- mir- miraculousness is we get out of the way and then God blows our mind. God, God gives us something we couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Miraculous. is. The but word. I mean, I get not to sh- shoot down your <laughs> Because it's magical. No, I words matter for yeah, sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know the Bible or you know any spiritual uh, orientation towards things is going to warn against magical stuff, trying to manipulate reality for your own ends to to get what you want. Versus miraculousness is what happens when God will often give us something far more profound than what magic can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Okay. Um, 
Okay. So I just want to look over my notes real quick because there were definitely some things. Um, so uh, the woman, the opposite day woman. Mm. I, so basically in the book, there was this woman that came in that gave a talk when you were in rehab and she was like, I live every day. Like it's opposite day. So everything that I would like typically do, I do the opposite. And you seem to really take to that. Do you want to just share a little about that? Yeah, that was in detox, right? So that was when um, I was, uh, you know, I was in this horrific cold turkey detox. Like I didn't have anything to make it comfortable. It was awful. It was just awful. And uh, worst days of my life. And um, and so, yeah, I would look forward to these people who would come in and they would give their little talks, their little recovery spiels. And yeah, so she would just, you know, say it's, it's all about the op. You got to do the opposite. You have to do the opposite of, yeah, it's opposite day. So if I want to do this, I do that. If I want to go right, I go left. If I want to take a drink, I have some water or whatever. Right. And so the, you know, recovery in so many ways, it's about counterintuitiveness. You know, it's about, it's about what is the, so one of the first things that they'll have you do in recovery and re you get in rehab, make your bed, you know, vacuum, clean, you know, like all this stuff that you is completely counterintuitive. Like, no, I just want to sit on the couch and be on drugs all day long. Right. So you start to form these new habits by doing the opposite of what you would want to do. Yeah. Which at that point, if you're like a full on addict, unless you're like a speed freak, you don't want to do anything. You know, speed freak of always people going around and doing something. It's completely insane. It turns into tweaking is referred to, but, but yeah, you don't really want to do anything. So starting to do something, the opposite of what you want to do. Yeah. That's kind of how the, the groundwork is laid. Yeah. How, um, I'm really, the past couple of years, I've been really focused on consistency and like the consistency is what keeps me grounded in my, in my own recovery is like consistent. I have certain habits and things that I do, but it's the consistency of every single day doing those things. And when I don't like, I will, you know, fall back and like have no appetite and like kind of fly, fly back. Um, how have you noticed consistency playing a role in your own recovery? Well, I mean, to this day, I'm probably at, um, five minute, five, recovery gatherings i refer to them as a week still um so that that that's that's always that's and i the, the reason i'm at them is because i enjoy them and i love them and i enjoy the people and i love the people who are there there's very little to do with uh keeping me away from a drink um it has to do with connecting with the fellowship of like-minded people so that's very consistent um I mean, consistency is consistency. If you take it out of the recovery world, like consistency is the key to everything, you know, like it's the reason I've been able to be, it's the reason I'm a coach, you know, it's because of consistency of not giving up um, and just continuing to, in a lot of ways, take contrary action or to do things we don't want to do. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, I feel like if someone would have told me consistency is key, it's like, oh my gosh, you know? Um, yeah, really. Well, I'm sure that I have been told that, but just, I guess, didn't want to listen. <laughs> um, okay. And then the consequences, um, what was I, 
Okay. So sorry. I just want to make sure that I like touch on, touch on all the things that I want to touch on, but I, there's a part in your book where you were supposed to go to this halfway house and then you're playing basketball. Right. And you got injured and yeah. they weren't, you weren't able to go to, to the house. Um, I guess I think when I was reading, I was like, man, this is, I'm thinking of the hero's journey. Right. And like, there's things are making a turn for their better and there's light at the end of the tunnel and you're so close. And then, you know, all of a sudden like the flying monkeys come out from like, wizard of Oz and it's like right. a challenge that is what, what's this about? Right. Um, I guess, do you want to share a little bit about that experience? Well, that's like the definition of that's like a, the, the mirac- magic versus miracle. So I was fully surrendered and I was going to go to this halfway house out in the Western suburbs of Chicago. Right. It was called serenity house. And I was like, I'm doing the thing. I don't care. Like I, I didn't have a driver's license. Like I didn't getting around the suburbs of Chicago without a driver's license. Not easy. Right. Um, but I didn't care. I was going to, I was going to do whatever was required of me. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> and, and so I was playing basketball. I sucked at basketball, but I would show up. I'd play my heart out um, every day that I could. And um, I went up for a rebound, came down, snapped my, my, broke my foot or my ankle or something. I think it was my foot. And um, so now I'm stuck in this. And and so the halfway house in the suburbs wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me in. So I was going to like be in this halfway house in the suburbs. I was going to work for this guy's basement ceiling company. This guy like employed people in recovery with a basement crawl space ceiling company. I was going to do that. You know, I was like, I'll get a job and and I was going to be getting rides everywhere. You know, I was going to be just whatever I needed to do. You know, I was going to do it and and not suffer. Right. And broke my leg. So they wouldn't take me in. So I'm in my and I, I think I ended up being stuck in rehab then for another three weeks or something. And. um And. uh So I begged my counselor, like, please help me to get into this get me out of here. I've been here for too long. I was like awakened. I was like ready to do the deal. I was ready to do recovery. I didn't care and and whatnot. And, uh, and he made a couple phone calls and he got me into this other place in the city in the far North side in Rogers park in Chicago, um, where I ended up living for nine years. And, um, and that was how I ended up living on Lake Michigan. That was how I ended up surfing. That was how I ended up living in this magical building uh, right on the, literally on the beach. It had its own private beach. The believe the only private beach in the entire city. Um, and that was where I met all these friends. That was how I started windsurfing and then surfing. And that's inevitably what led me to California to, to surf full time. Right. Um, it was, it was the willingness was willing to do whatever it took, which meant going to some crappy ass place in the suburbs and doing the suburban thing winter was coming like it was just gonna suck but i was gonna do it but then god was basically just like nope i have something better for you because i see your willingness and so then he basically put me on the beach and that's the that's god blowing my mind that's god i could not have imagined that i didn't know there was surfing on lake michigan right i could not imagine that and so God gave me something so far beyond anything I could begin to conceptualize. And what people will often tell you in early recovery, when you're like sitting there in rehab, you're at your first, you're at your first gathering of recovering people and you're hating life. People will tell you, you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams. 
and you can't believe it. You, you're just like, what are you talking about? And the longer you stick around in recovery, the more you just see that happening over it. You see people, everyone that's fully in it, fully, completely, and totally in it has a life beyond their wildest dreams. It's life. Things happen. Um, it's not easy always, um, but it works. It works for literally every single person I know who's fully does the deal. It works. Their life works as good as it could work. And there's plenty of room for error in there. It's not spiritual progress. It's not spiritual perfection. Um, but it, life just works for people. So um, it's it's just, it's amazing. You know, I don't, I can't explain this. I, I'm not deserving of it. Um, you know, there's, I can't explain, I say this in the book, I talk about it at the, in the last chapter, I can't really explain any of it without being able to explain all of it. Um, every little bit matters. And so at some point I, I woke up and said, okay, I'm going to do this instead of that. So. Yeah. I think that's such an incredible story and just like reassuring too, for the people who like things have fallen through for them. And yet it's like, okay, let's, let's keep, let's keep the faith that something else is coming. Cause in that period, you, you know, you're really disappointed when you couldn't go to serenity. House. Right. Totally. And it's like, you didn't <laughs> know what was coming. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't, you know, people just say, turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. God has this thing figured out. You just need to, you just need to surrender. Right. Which sometimes it actually is passive. Sometimes it's like, okay, God, I'm just going to sit on the couch and let you deal with this. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it ended up working out, you know, and, you know, I, we didn't get into the heroin part, but like, you know, I, I, I was a full blown, full blown, disgusting, filthy heroin addict um, who had upwards of $150 day habit. Um and, and who did disgusting things, you know, um, and who was also on probation in Cook County facing prison, you know, um, and with a DUI on top of it, you know, um, and, you know, side note, I didn't drive for nine years. And I made a formal ninth step amends to the state of Illinois when I got my driver's license back finally after nine years of not driving. Right. Um, I deserved that. I was deserving of that. You know, that was a more than does, you know, it's, it's a process to get it back. It's pain in the butt. And I had a bicycle and all this other stuff, but, but I was just, you know, that was fair. That was totally fair. Right. And that's another part of recovery is owning, owning what you did, owning it fully, right. At the level of your soul and being willing to do whatever you need to do to make it right. Um, but yeah, it was just, I, I was, I went down as far as any human being could possibly go. And then, and then have this existence now, right? So it doesn't, it, no matter how far down you've gone, you can, you can in fact recover. Yeah. From, from just about anything, you know? Yeah. And then the, the day that you got off of probation is also a really um, incredible, I guess, experience and like testimony to the willingness that you had because you rode your bike in the snow Right. Was it like 20 miles or something? Like 17 miles. Mm -hmm. Seven, yes, like 17 miles. 
And do you, I guess, do you want to tell that story? A little? Well, yeah, it was my 33rd birthday and I had probation. Probation sucks. Like, you know, probation, you have to like show up. You go to the 26th in California building in Chicago. It's a freaking hellhole. I mean, it's just a dark, dirty, mean, nasty place. The county courthouse, right? And um, there are murderers and rapists and evil people and mean cops and awful lawyers and, you know, also good ones. You know what I mean? Um, but most of the criminals are criminals. So they're bad people, bad people. Right. Um, and you could argue I was a very bad person in a lot of ways. Right. I was a dangerous person, at least very negligent person, not, uh, albeit not mean spirited, but still, you know, I earned what I got. And, um, and so I would have to go in there and it's just the worst. You have to, you have to take your belt off, your shoes off. You have to go through a metal detector. You have to get wanded. Then you have to go wait in line to see your probation officer. Then you have to pee in a cup and it just sucks. And, and then you, you have to go in front of the judge and, um, and the judge just looks at your case and basically takes three minutes and he says, okay, get out of here. You know, and then you go downstairs and you pee in the cup, whatever. It's just a whole process you don't want to deal with. But, um, you know, I think probation was nine 30 in the morning. I had to be there. And so I left on my bicycle, um, at probably seven in the morning just to make sure. And, um, and I got there and 17 mile bike ride and I was covered in mud and covered in soaking wet. And there was mud all over my face. It was just one of those nasty spring days in Chicago. Again, first day of spring is my 33rd birthday. And, um, and the judge looked at me and he said, you look ridiculous. I said, yes, your honor, you know, why are you so dirty? Because I rode my bicycle from where? And I told him that's really far. I know. And he just looked at my case and he said, um, he just said, we don't need people like you on probation. Like, look at how, look at, and he said, let this man be an example. You know, he got here on time because judges, judges are not stupid. They sit on the bench and they listen to people lie all day to them. They are very, very, very smart. Right. Um, you know, furthermore, the my experience of the criminal justice system um, was not that it was an unfair deal. Um, that's just my experience. Um, it, you're given a chance. You know, if you've got like a drug offense or something, it's very likely that you will be given a chance, if not multiple chances. Um, but that's kind of a side thing. You're you're basically put in a position where you get to choose, right? Um, that was my experience. I was put in a position where I got to choose and the choice I had was change your entire life completely and totally from top to bottom. Every little thing that you can possibly imagine about it, you have to change and you have to transform or not. That was it. And so I chose to transform and he saw that he just saw that in my eyes and he just tell, I looked at him as a truthful man. And I just said, you know, I, I did my best to get here and I did. And that was it. He said, get out of here. Happy birthday. I never want to see you again. And I never did. So, and, and again, in recovery, you know, I don't want to say like every person in recovery, you know, some people actually do end up, I know a guy that just, um, he got busted for something. He'd been sober like four or five years and he got busted for some conspiracy stuff from stuff that he did like seven years ago. Right. Some gang stuff. And he got his house raided when he was like two years sober and He's in prison right now. 
And, but he's writing letters from prison to one of the groups that I go to and he's doing all right and he's accepting it and he's owning that he did some things that landed him there and it's going to be okay. You know, he found a little recovery community in prison. And so, you know, you hear stories like that and you're just like, wow. And then you hear so many stories like mine where like they were facing everything and they just changed and the judge let them go. There are plenty of stories of people that don't change. The judge lets them go and they keep screwing up until they like kill somebody or themselves. There are those stories too, unfortunately, you know, but um, that was it. The judge just took one look at me. And he'd seen me several times at that point and he let me go. So that's just a testament to the, you know, the power of what happened. Like it's a, a, a meritocracy question. Like I had, I had done all of the things required to let me go and I didn't do them perfectly, mind you but I did them well enough, you know? Yeah. And your, the transformation and your willingness to be there, I feel like was. Yeah. Like you have to, you know, are you willing to ride your bike 17 miles in the snow to get to the courthouse on time? And then he even asked me, I think this is in the book. What if you got a flat tire? I said, well, I figured that time. I figured that into the equation. You know, I rearranged my whole day. My whole day was being at court on time. And I've always been a person that's on time. I got that from my dad. Um, I, I take time very seriously. So I was, I was not going to be late. I was, there was no way. It was not an option. And people, it's funny because people stumble into court late. Like, it's, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, you just see them. And they're like, sorry, Your Honor. You know, judge doesn't want to, judge doesn't want to hear that. Right. He doesn't want to hear your sorry. He wants to see you there on time. Right. And everybody can, everybody can do it within reason, within reason, everybody's capable. Yeah. You have a really good um, time. Cause I always think of you with this, but it's like when you're late, it's either, wait, can you, can you just tell, do you know what I'm talking about? Where you talk about like being late and what it means? Yeah. If you're late, you're either, you're sending a message uh screw me or screw you yeah because we're not respecting time right, right? Like right. your time or my time yeah if you're not respecting someone's time you are not respecting their existence and if you show up late for them it's either screw you i'll show it up i want i'll show up when i want or you're all frazzled and oh god i'm so sorry I was, there was so much traffic i didn't you know that's like my i got into a fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend that's like screw me that's why i'm late so it's either screw me or screw you Right. A really powerful distinction around time. Yeah. And you can tell right away with people if they're late, you can tell if it's screw me or screw you. So. Yeah. Based on, based on how they present. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for this chat. I've really enjoyed hearing more and just talking. <clears throat> Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about or that you feel is like coming to you right now that you want to talk about that we haven't? No, just, you know, anything's possible. Like you could, I, you know, I'm so, I, I just am truly honored that people have actually read the book and that they actually like the book. And, um, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback and not everybody likes it. And that's just the way that it's going to, that's, that's just it. But um, I just really honored that um, I've gotten, the responses I have overall about it. So that was awesome. And so I just hope that it, you know, if you want to get it, you can go undercoverangelbook.com or get in touch with me and I'll send you a copy. Um, but yeah, that's really all I got. 
there's an associated podcast. I have to release more episodes, but there are 10 episodes of the podcast that goes with the Undercover Angel uh, with the book Undercover Angel. It's called the Undercover Angel Podcast. If you go to the website, you'll see it there. There's 10 episodes. But what I'm doing there is diving deeper into it. Um, so telling the backstory to every to each of the stories in the book. And I, I need to get back on that. Um, I'm procrastinating. But that was because the release of the book was very intense. I had no idea how intense it would be. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really all I got. Anything's possible, you know, no matter you you can you can transcend the place you're stuck. You just have to stare the dragon in the eye, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that you are an amazing storyteller. So oh. even just even just on the podcast, just the way that you tell stories, it just it's it's captivating. And that's how it felt when I was reading your book too. It's just, I just wanted to just keep, keep going, especially because you put the stories, the way that you wrote it was just, I loved it. Yeah, thank you. yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time and being here with me. And I'll put all the details in the show notes for those that want to connect with you more. Sounds good. Really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Talk to you guys later. <laughs> Thanks, guys.